Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Steve Heilig and writer Peter Orner. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to Commonweal for, for setting this up as well. And I really, it's, this is the last event I'm doing for this book. Um, I think ever, but uh, uh, definitely in the Bay Area, and it's you know great to be home here. So thank you all for for coming. And um, so I thought a part of part of Steve's grand plan. It, it's and Steve's. It's so good to be talking to Steve, a writer and thinker. I so admire, and so I hope I, I hope we have a good discussion. I'm sure we will. I'm sure the questions will be good. Um, I'm not sure about the answers. So, but Steve asked me to start out by reading first, if that's okay. So. Um, I won't. I won't explain the book too much, except to say that it's a book. It's sort of undefinable um, what it is, what category it is. So it puts it difficult in the bookstore where to put it. But it's a book of essays that makes up kind of an unconventional memoir. Is sort of how I'm framing it, or how it how it's shaking out. Um, and this is a, a more of a memoir type piece. piece. It's called My Father's Gloves. Um, originally appeared in the New York Times in a much more condensed uh, way, and so I was able in the book to make it um, longer, uh, longer and more whatever. So anyway, this is, this is that. It's called My Father's Gloves. I've been trying to lie about this for years. As a fiction writer, I think I'm going to stand up, but that's okay, because I'm used yeah. to standing up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I've been trying to lie about this for years. As a fiction writer... I feel an almost righteous obligation to the untruth. (laughs) Yet in many attempts over the years, I've not been able to make out of this tiny but sadly soul-defining episode in my life anything more than a plain recounting of facts, dressing them up into fiction, into a story, wrecked what is essentially a long-overdue confession. I watched my father in the front hall putting on his new lambskin leather gloves. This was Chicago, early November 1982. My father had just returned from a business trip to Paris. He'd bought the gloves at a place called Hermes, and if I'm pronouncing it wrong, that's my prerogative. (laughs) A mythical wonderland of a department store. He presented the white box to us. He opened it slowly and laid each glove on his forearm. He said, did you know another word for glove is gauntlet? Medieval knights were required to wear them. Then he put the gloves on gingerly, one finger at a time, and held them up to the front hall mirror to see how his hands looked in such exquisite gauntlets. A week later, I was home from school. No one else was around. I opened the right-hand drawer of the front hall table, and there were the Hermes gloves comfortably nested. I learned for the first time how easy it is just to grab something. I stuffed the gloves in my pants and sprinted upstairs to my room. I hid them in the back of my closet under the wicker basket that held my license plate collection. And then I braced myself for days, for weeks. It was an unseasonably warm November. When we finally left that house on Hazel Avenue, my mother, brother, and I, I took the gloves with me to our new place. I took them with me to college. After I graduated, I took them with me to Namibia on a farm outside Karabib, on the edge of the Namib Desert, the oldest desert in the world. It was often cold enough at night for gloves. The wind would suck the 90-degree days right out of the sand, but I never put them on. I still have the gloves, 35-some-odd years later. I've never worn them, not once, although my father and I have the same small hands. 
Now that he is older and far milder, it's hard for me to believe how scared I used to be of him. Back then, he was so full of anger. Unhappy in his marriage, no doubt. He and my mother never had much in common. She was outgoing and liked people. He liked to hold up at home and hate all the people she wanted to see. But his anger, and often it was rage, went beyond this not-so-unusual mismatch. My own diagnosis is that, as with other chronically unsatisfied people, the daily business of living caused my father great despair. At no time did this dissatisfaction manifest itself more powerfully than when he came home from work. A rug askew, a jacket not hung up, a window left open, a water glass in the sink, all could set off a fury. My brother once spilled a pot of ink on the snowy white carpet of my parents' bedroom, Armageddon. Yet his unpredictability is what made his explosion so potent because sometimes the bomb wouldn't go off and he'd act somewhat like our idea of a normal dad. In December, when he finally did notice that his precious gloves were missing, my father seemed only confused. Maybe they're in the glove compartment, my mother said. Impossible, my father said. The glove compartment is for maps. <laughs> oh, well, my mother shrugged. You can go to Fells and get a new pair. Fells, Red Fell doesn't know gloves from galoshes. He kept searching the front hall table as if somehow he'd overlooked them amid all the cheap imitation leather gloves, mismatched mittens, and tasseled Chicago Bears hats. I'm certain that the notion that one of us had taken the gloves never once crossed his mind. Burdened by guilt, but never enough to return them, I've tried to contort this story into fiction, which is my job. In many failed events, in, in my failed attempts, the thief slash son is always trying to give the gloves back. In one version, the son mails the gloves back to the father along with a forged letter purportedly written by a long-dead friend of the father, a man the father had once betrayed. The whole thing got so convoluted, but I liked the idea of a package arriving out of the blue from some aggrieved ghost in the, from the past. I'm returning the gloves I stole, Ronald. Now at least one of us may be absolved. The problem was, of course, that this palmed off responsibility on a third party. And it muddied the story by pulling the sun thief out of the center of what little action there was. In an equally pathetic version, the son, who I named Jean-Luc for a Parisian touch, home for Thanksgiving, slips the gloves back in the top right-hand drawer of the front hall table of the house he grew up in, the house where his father still lives. This one marred not only by cooked-up dialogue, but also by a dead end. Father, you want to take a walk by Lake Michigan? It's been years, Jean-Luc, since we've had a walk by the lake. A chill wind blows, the son says. Perhaps you need gloves? <laughs> the moment arrives, the father slides open the right-hand drawer of the front hall table, cut to the father's face, describe his bewilderment. Decades drop from the father's eyes, and both father and son face each other as they never faced each other when both were years younger. The son stammers out a confession. He tries to explain himself, but he can't. Why did he take the gloves? Why? Why? And so the story kept collapsing. It may be that this is a case where the truth, whatever truth actually is, derails fiction. I can't give the gloves back in a story or in this thing we call reality. If I did, I'd have to confront something I've known all along but could never express even to myself. My father would have given me the fucking gloves. All I had to do was ask. He would have been so pleased that for once I liked something he liked. It happened so few times in our lives. All the years I've been trying to write this, maybe I've known this fact would stick me in whatever heart I've got left. Our imaginations sometimes fail us for a reason. 
Not because it's cathartic to tell the truth, but because coming clean may be a better story. A scared, angry, bewildered kid takes his father's gloves, ends up carrying around with them, carrying them around with him from place to place, rented apartment to rented apartment. Sometimes he takes them out and feels them, but he never puts them on. When I see my father these days, we graze each other's cheeks, which is a form of kissing in my family. I love the man. I suppose I did even then. Well-made things eventually deteriorate. The Hermes gloves are no longer baby soft. All the handless years have dried them up. I never wanted the gloves. I only wanted you not to have them. In 1982, you weren't much older than I am at this moment, Dad. And I think of you now, standing in the front hall, holding those gloves up to the mirror, a rare stillness on your face, a kind of hopeful calm. Was this what I wanted to rip right off your hands? That's that. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's that. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. And let me add my welcome. Thank you all for showing up here. I think somewhere in, I think it was this book, and I've read a bunch of this. <laughs> you, you talked about being on a book tour, and one person showed up, and she only showed up because you had the same last name, and she wanted to know if you're related. So that was it. <laughs> and not only Which that, wasn't she, the case, right? She, she wanted also to tell me that she kept getting calls from from oh, yeah. T-Mobile, <laughs> there was my bill, and she wanted to discuss that and have me call T-Mobile and call them off her. Right. That's not the first time I had one person, believe me. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it was the most humiliating of many humiliations, by the way. Right. So it's interesting you chose that chapter or that section because the book itself is mostly about books, or at least it's mostly about keyed off of books that you've right. read and loved. Right. And so I was a book critic, still am, but I mean, I did it weekly for 20 years for the Chronicle. And wow. book reviews can be really boring. So I read this and I thought, now this is amazing. This is, you know, you use this as a way to key off on, you know, personal stories, whatever, other thoughts. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not just saying that. I think it's a, a great book. It's actually, and you know, you're writing about fiction, but it's so far it's my favorite of yours. So, <laughs> but it's always good to have that. It made the me, last yeah. <laughs> you're only as good as your latest, right? <laughs> right. Is what they say in Hollywood. Right. Um, but you reminded it reminded me too of two two previous talks that we've done through the New School with Marin people, local people. One was our poet laureate Joanne Kiger, mm -hmm. and she dedicated her uh, collected poems to those who love to read period, which I thought was wonderful. Right. And clearly you're one of those. In fact, the one thing we have in common is that probably in particular, because one of the things you say in here is, and I have this too, a, an abject terror of going anywhere and not having something to read, right? No matter where you are. <laughs> it happened to me the, It happened to me the other day and it was so horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I know that's a terrible thing to say. Because I I should, maybe I should be looking around and I don't know. Yeah. Contemplating. Well, there is the one. Possible. It was quoted in the uh, the start of the New York Times review from last Sunday before. Orner opens his meditations with an anecdote. Accused by his daughter of loving only two things, quote, books and apples, he protested, of course, he dearly loves many things, including her. But as he wryly notes, he had to suspend his reading to answer her, and while answering, had kept his place in the book with his <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds familiar right, to me. Right. <laughs> the other thing is the... I wish uh, that wasn't true. Yeah, well... pretty much true. The other thing is the you mentioned that if the most likely thing to kill you in an earthquake would be the books piling down on top of you, True. 
which is in, in the 1989 earthquake in San Francisco, that's what happened in my house, right? <laughs> so, um, so you love reading. Do you, going way back, what do you remember your first, like where you really got turned on, you know, to just this, having a book to read, and, and do you remember what it was? Um, boy, I mean, you know, probably a lot, like a lot of people, I, I remember like that, the book about the mother who has, you know, flies away from the nest to, are you my mother? Are you my mother? You my where mother? he asked the, where, I mean, why is that so poignant? I mean, it's so simple. But he asked the bulldozer, you know, are you my mother? I, I, I love that. I think that I have very vivid memories of that being read to me. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, another very early book was a, a book about, uh, called The Cricket in Times Square. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, book about a cricket living in the subway in New York. I, you know, maybe it was animal things, which I, I don't know. And so when you started reading on your own, what were you most drawn to? What did you? Uh, I had a great English teacher in, 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 in high school, Mrs. Angerman. She just died recently. And, and uh, I remember uh, Crime and Punishment and, and Grapes of Wrath. You know, and, and, and she let us, she did, she kind of let us be. You know, she didn't tell us what to think, mm -hmm. at least that I don't recall. And so I, I think that given that freedom to just be in those books for weeks at a time, mm -hmm. I, I think was made an enormous difference. Mm -hmm. So it was, a, was fiction was the main? Yeah, thing. fiction's yeah. always been my, right. I mean, I read nonfiction and I, now I've written a little bit, but right. I made up stories are what I, I'm always after. Yeah. And do you remember when you first, were you writing them, when you first started writing your own of any kind? Yeah, I think it was in that same class. I, I've always had a tear, you know, when teachers make you write on the spot. I could never, like if I suddenly said, like, let's all, let's all get out the pens, you know, and start writing something. Some people like that because it gets them going. I find it utterly terrifying as, you know, as a professor, I've more done it a few times and, and I could never do what I ask people to do. But um, she, the teacher said, write about something in the room and I couldn't literally, I, I still have, I have a little bit, I still have panic attacks because the only thing that I could come up with was electric socket. It was the only, it was the only thing I could think of to write about in a whole room of people. And that has always brought me shame. <laughs> I, you know, and I think I'm, I think I kind of feel that way every time I sit down to work. Shit, electric socket now. Yeah, right. I don't know. You know, I don't know if that answers, but I, I, I've always um, had a hard time with this, and yeah. it doesn't come easy for me. I guess is what I'm saying. Right. But I love it nonetheless. Well, that's high school. So then, when you went on, you went to college and you went to law school. You have to write in law school, but many people have said that law school has ruined them for writing forever because of <laughs> I heard. I I hear that. Yeah, because they were writing legal briefs or whatever. But, but were you writing in college and law school always. fiction as well? I, I was always writing. I, I, in college, I barely went to class. I wrote. I found out that I could take classes that would give me credit for writing stories. So I would take the same class over and over again. Tish O'Dowd Ezekiel, wonderful teacher, wonderful name. I think she was like literally seven feet tall. And she was incredible, harsh critic. She'd tell you, that's not funny. That's not funny. That's not working. And she would just, you know, tear you apart. And that, um, I would take her over and over again. Where was this? This is at University of Michigan. Uh -huh. And uh, I mean, it was ridiculous. I have no education in that sense because I didn't have to take anything else. Somehow I got by. <laughs> and then law school was the same way. I went to this really 
lefty law school called, in, called Northeastern in Boston, by kind of founded by real kind of radical human rights lawyer people. And I loved it because there wasn't, it wasn't all that academic, and I actually had time to... Um, I would sit and trust in the states class, which is actually fascinating because you get to read about people fighting over wills, mm-hmm. which is, the, you know, the best stories around, <laughs> family stories. I mean, law school was a, you know, so I didn't ruin me for any, and people told me that, like, my father, who it was a lawyer, he died three years ago now, basically begged me not to go to law school. Like, it wasn't, I, I went myself because he said, this is, you're going to hate this. And I ended up kind of enjoying it because of the environment I was in because it was this lefty Place, but also because of the stories I was surrounded by. Mm-hmm. And I would sit and, and I would write stories about the cases that I was supposedly having had studied that day. Mm-hmm. I hadn't studied them. I just right, got right. the, f- I would, you know, law cases start, I'm sure there's lawyers, <laughs> with the facts. And then they talk about the law and all that. So I would just read the facts because yeah, I was just getting material. Know, I just want to know what the fight was about. No. And then and then I would go from there. So. And you never worked or practiced in law? Or I, I, I've done uh, some immigration uh, pro bono stuff in San Francisco um, with lawyers committee, but yeah. not. When you were working on all these, on the fiction surreptitiously or yeah. otherwise, um, when did you start looking to publish anything? Where did that start? It was around that time. You know, law school. Um, in law it, school. It was like protection. I had this little bubble of protection I could be sort of having this kind of a, almost a job. Mm-hmm. And then I started to publish at that point. And where did you start? Where did, what were you doing submitting to? Where? Uh, I, my first publication was in a magazine called Another Chicago Magazine. <laughs> it was about a guy who wakes up and his girlfriend is breaking all the windows of the apartment. She's smashing the windows. <laughs> It's about two pages. And uh-huh. I, the happiest day was my life when another well, Chicago was, magazine came calling. I was going to ask you, how did it feel when yeah. you first got it? I was, I was, I could, I was shocked, people utterly. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I still feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but, but, yeah, I've always, you know, it, it kind of can't, went from there. You know, I'm always trying to, one at a time, uh-huh. you know. Well, what was the trajectory? Where did you step up from there? Were you submitting professional uh, publications? After sure. That, I, I, I got into like a, a magazine called The Southern Review, which is a you know, vener- old venerated, and it's a beautiful paper and beautiful, the most beautiful um, typeset, letterpress printing. Uh, I loved that. And then um, I guess my break was The Atlantic Monthly. Um, mm-hmm. They took a, a story of mine, a very short story about uh, my a grandfather in World War II, and that that um, led to you know the first book. That was the, the next best day of your life after that, right? Yeah, it was Atlanta pretty, Monthly. I was, yeah, I was still pretty shocked. Although the fact checking was oh yeah <laughs> terrifying, and also they lacked a sense of humor. The, the grandfather in the thing in the story says he yells at his wife. He says, "You're not going to see if you you keep interrupting the story I'm telling the grandkid. You're not going to see." Uh, uh, Beanie Dawaskin until the armistice, which was a joke, right? He was in World War II, the armistice of World War I. I knew that. But Atlantic <laughs> Monthly came to me and said, you can't say that. Our readers are not going to get it. You have to say VJ Day. So anyway, if I'm getting those correct, anyway, so right. things like that. People, people, editor, copy editors do not have a sense of humor. No, they're really annoying. And I think it's getting worse with the internet. Like you can't make a joke because people think you're, you're, you didn't look it up, you know. So anyway, that's if you there is anybody fact checking at all. There. That's true. Yeah. That's so it's true. one or the other. It's yeah, not exactly. all or nothing. No, you're right. Yeah, you're exactly. Right. 
right. <laughs> certainly right about that. So this is your first book, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is Esther, Esther Stories mm-hmm. that uh, came out in 2001. Yeah. And this is, you look at this as a collection of short stories from all over the place. And did you want to read anything from this? Sure. Yeah, Should, yeah that's our... This is our this is our plan. Yeah, chronological. Uh, this is for Jane. This is a story that uh, yeah mentions her home state. Uh, actually, you know what, Jane? I'm sorry. I just changed my mind. But there was a Rhode Island story in here. Yeah, this is a Fall River story, which is just across the Taunton River uh, from uh, from uh, where Jane's from in Rhode Island. Uh, this is called Atlantic City. Um, and uh, it's a, just a three-page story. Uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't read this in so long, so I have no idea how this is going to sound. But um, it's a part of a what basically almost makes up a novella in this book, and it's a it's called a Fall River Marriage, and it's about um, a couple named Walt and Sally, Walt and Sarah Kaplan. Um, this is the uh, second-to-last story in that um, sequence. Atlantic City. Stand up again. Um, Sarah comes home for lunch after her volunteer shift at the register in the hospital gift shop and finds Walt dead on the floor of their bedroom. He's been dead for at least two hours. Second and last heart attack, and from this one, there was no turning back. The man turned 59 only three months ago. This is September 1975. It's been a long morning. Friday mornings always are, and Sarah's feet hurt. She kneels beside his body and lifts his wrist to check for his pulse, even though she knows from looking at him. She knows. The way she knows it's morning through the thick drapes of a strange hotel room. The way she knows it's bad news by the way the phone rings mid-ring. Walt's dead. He's too young. He's dead. He's on his back with his suit pants on, sprawled as though he went with fight. He's clutching his wallet in his left hand. His teeth are still good and white. Shoes are polished. His tie is crooked but tight and confident up to his big Adam's apple. He could be a toppled wax statue. He's wearing his watch. His hands aren't clammy. He's wet himself. But still, he could be sleeping on the floor. He could be napping. He could have fallen, tripped, knocked his head against the telephone table and conked himself out. She rests an ear on his chest, not to listen for any movement of his heart, but because she is suddenly so weary and he has been her fat pillow all these years. Though she doesn't want to sleep, she wants to rest awake. She sits up and takes off her shoes, then settles her head on his chest again, on his blue seahorse's tie, on his sprawl. It's not comfortable because of the angle, but she doesn't adjust. And she remains still and listens to her own breathing, a bit quickened but not hysterical, nothing even close to hysterical. Other women she thinks would get hysterical right now. They'd run around moaning, dial telephone numbers, furiously shriek, Fools, she thinks. Showy fools. Dingbats, Walt would call them. Dingbat chickens, bark, bark, barking. Walt, she thinks, too many sirloins at the Magonies in Somerset. And how many Howard Johnson hot dogs on a buttered bun? You ate, ate, ate like a happy hog across your life, and now I'm here. I could murder you. You want to see tears? You want them to drop on your shirt so you could feel them on your skin? Didn't I tell you that time in Atlantic City you waddled like an old man, that you needed to rest too much, that you couldn't walk the boardwalk without getting so tired? Now look at you, Walt. You can't even make it to work. That time in Atlantic City you laughed at me and said, who the hell needs walking anyway? 
and you bought us both another double cone and you pounded your chest and said, you got to live while you live. And that was all well and good for you. You don't have to come home to you like this. I have to come home to you. Well, Atlantic City. Why Atlantic City now? That time in Atlantic City with Bernie and Nita Sadow. You on the beach, the only one of us who'd swim. Bernie had some kind of skin condition. Who knew with that man? It was always something. And God, that Nina, she didn't stop talking to take a breath the whole three days we were down there. About what? You said you never heard so much nonsense since Saul Graboy's talk you into buying his lemon Eldorado. But you swam, darling. Bernie with his skin condition and his chain of what? Check cashing stores? Wasn't that it? Didn't Bernie Sato own a chain of check cashing stores in Newark? What a business to be in. No wonder he has skin condition. <laughs> you splashing and shouting at us. I stayed on the beach because I couldn't escape Nina's mouth and Bernie sitting there bundled up like it was February in Warsaw. And you, my fat, brave knight, my tubular warrior in the water, splashing, throwing a tennis ball to those shouting boys and those boys leaping out of the water like pale white porpoises. You swam with those boys. Why Atlantic City now? We haven't spoken to Bernie and Nina Sadow in how many years? You came back and shook your hair at us and said to Nina, stop jabbering, woman, stop. Come on, deadbeats, it's the 4th of July in Atlantic City. Nina wanted to go back to the hotel and play cards. Bernie didn't want to do anything but tell strangers on the beach about his ailments, that straw hat pulled down to his eyes, that huge coat, those big sunglasses. You said he looked like your Russian great aunt, Aunt Portia Berdobovich. At least that got a smile out of Bernie. But Nina barely heard it over her own blather, except to, me, except to say to me, oh, you're well, so hysterical. He's got to be really the most hysterical of all the husbands. Of all the husbands, she said, and for once, even though she went right back to complaining about the food at the hotel, for once that woman had an ounce of wisdom. You said, Bernie, my big Polish babushka. And Bernie said, I thought you said I was Russian, because Bernie had a sense of humor, which was more than you could say for Nina. And you said, Poland, Russia, it all looks the same to a Jew on the run. And Bernie, who was sensitive and serious on that point, didn't laugh, only said, indeed. And later in the hotel, you stood up on the bed with Q-tips sticking up out of your ears and mimicked Bernie's indeed. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Who do you think he is, the queen's mother? Because Bernie was always finding new ways to remind people that he went to Harvard. But check cashing? Harvard College, Harvard Yard, and that's how he ended up making a living? Oh, my lovely, my lovely, my lovely. It's been a long time. <laughs> Barely. So when this came out, yeah. you know, it was, uh, as these things go, something of a sensation. You wound up with great reviews and great, uh, all these other writers on here, that you know, Marilyn Robinson, Charles Baxter, Talking about how great it was. How did this all feel? Did this was this like what? Do you, you feel like this kicked off your? Uh... It was. Uh, it was November two thousand one. <laughs> oh. It was a weird time for yeah, a yeah. lot of things. <laughs> so, um, yeah. but yeah, it was. It was a. It was a. It was a, a nice. Uh, a nice start. Um, surprising. Um, that was a first edition paperback, which it, which at that time was sort of rare, and so, mm. um, you know, it was a kind of a, a, a nice thing people could actually afford it as well as. Yeah, right. You know, so yeah, it was it was um, surprising to me, yeah. and especially since the stories are, yeah, 
I mean, you know, stories are, people always uh, have it against, have it out for stories. Stories are never going to do this. Stories are never going to do that. You got to write a novel, et cetera, et cetera. And I dearly love stories, so I was happy to start with that. Well, you say in the new book, uh, for me, all stories are fiction. The only question is, does it rattle the soul or not? Um, so I'm reading this, when I was reading this, and I thought, I wonder how much of this, these stories, which a lot of them are, for lack of a better, easy term, dark. The things that go on are, are dark. And it actually reminded me of somebody that you didn't mention in your influences here, but some of a Raymond Carver. Sure. Um, yeah, so, you know, how much of this was stuff that you knew or how much came out of your imagination overall? I mean... I mean, because some of it is, I mean, it's, some of it is so vivid and so, you know, like, wow, how would you make that up? <laughs> You're listening to a TNS conversation with Steve Heilig and Peter Orner. I mean, I, I, I like to use what I pick up, you know, in, in, in real life and then twist it around. And like most fiction writers, I, you know, there's an element of truth in everything I do, but, you know, I, I think... You know, I think, I mean, I think dark, yes, but I, I hope there's, um, you know, I think we carry around these things with us. Um, in that case, I, I was writing about my grandmother who, my grandfather died at 59, like the character in the story. Um, I don't know if he quite died in the way I describe, uh, but my grandmother lived for about 20 years after and never mentioned it. Now, she loved him, I know. I know that from my mother. I know that from having been with them. Um, I know, I know that. Um, I don't, I, you know, and so the mystery of her not mentioning him has haunted me, but also not, I don't think it was like a bad thing. She wasn't, she just, I think she held whatever she thought about him inside. And so that, that's not in there in anything. It may be in something later. I mean, these characters reoccur. Walt and Sarah, I'm working on again. I can't seem to get enough of them. But, um, but so, yeah, I think I, I project stuff um, on real people that they may not have actually divulged to me. Well, yeah. Which I think is what fiction does. Yeah, you actually wrote, we'll come back to it maybe, you write about doing that when you're traveling, looking at people who are, you know, sitting in a cafe or on a train or something, and you create an entire life for them, yeah. you know, the poor innocent bystander <laughs> right but so they're just trying to go home and they got yeah. invading their space you know so this is short stories another one you have i mean that is i mean if, is that your chosen i mean you've done novels too but you know you you write in here a little bit about how uh, in your new book about how the novel is kind of like the the idolized version you know if you don't write a novel you're not a serious writer or whatever right. it is right which i i think is you know nonsense um you know, it, to me, the the story is just this amazingly elastic and um, incredibly reinventable thing. And I am tend to be drawn to novels that that attempt to do something different than a you know a conventional structure. Um, so, but I think stories for some for me, and it, it's just personal. I think that stories have the like a really good story will probably reinvent the form in some way. You know, it'll, it'll do something that'll 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 take it in another direction. I just find that the opportunity in stories to be greater for me personally. It's not, it's, you know, it's a personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find stories exciting. I love stories. And I, I, I think they're, 
the fact that they are uncelebrated and somewhat um, disrespected, uh, certainly by publishing, I think only makes me love them more. Mm-hmm. They're how orphans. Does, yeah. How does that manifest? You just harder to place them anywhere? Or, sure. Yeah. Yeah. There are less journals and magazines in there. You For sure. Yeah. I mean, with the internet, there's maybe more than ever, but I think to get paid for a short story, um, you know, people want them free now. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is really tragic. <laughs> so, but, so, yeah. you know, it's, there's a good thing that there's as many as, you know, many outlets as you can count now, but um, national magazines, Atlantic, where I, Got my big break. Only does one fiction issue a year. Right. I, I don't know if they changed that back. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but That's I don't believe true. they have fiction um, in their general issues. New Yorker still does, although you know sometimes those stories tend to kind of be of a certain type. They're not quite, and you know it's easy to say that, but I think if you looked at you look at them, they're you know they certainly have a certain unless they're in tra- translation. I always re- I always look for those, but. Um, Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, the story's it, disrespected. <laughs> no, it is. You say it's personal. So if, you say in the new book, if the novel is the more communal form, the short story is for loners, for those off to the side. Or to put it more mundanely, stories are like me at a party. I hover near the appetizers and have been known to consume entire wheels of cheese in order to keep busy. <laughs> Anything to avoid the oppressive mob laughter of group conversations. <laughs> so thanks again for coming here tonight. <laughs> You know at a party when people are just laughing and it's some, a story's not funny? That's the worst to me. I just, I just want to die. Uh, so, yeah. But, I, but it, that comes from Frank O'Connor, my, my, one of my heroes. He's a, the great Irish writer who wrote a very cantankerous book called The Lonely Voice, which I revere. And Lonely Voice is a, a set of um, lectures he gave at Stanford where he kind of holds forth on the short story. And to my knowledge, um, there are very few, if not only this one book that focuses only on the short story that really sort of delves into why this particular form is for loners. This is where, I mean, the idea comes from that, but his argument, and I strongly believe it, he says, if you look at the great stories from any particular culture, those stories will probably be about somewhat marginalized voice in that culture in some way, whether, whether it's economic marginalization or, or ethnic or whatever it is, there's usually, it's coming from like a corner of the society. And it, you could test this out. And he uses the great example of, um, of, of Gogol's uh, story, The Overcoat, a great Russian writer, The Overcoat. And he, it's about a clerk who loves his coat so much and of course, the coat gets ripped off his body and it's freezing. And his coat, the only thing that mattered to him was his coat. And Gogol makes fun of him by, while at the same time elevating him into like mythical status. It's an amazing thing for a unknown clerk. And O'Connor argues that out of this story comes a, a sort of genre of, of writing where it's like there is this voice coming from, from a little bit outside. Yeah. Whereas the novel oftentimes is like a novel that maybe encompasses you know, a more of a mainstream or, or tries bigger. Uh, I was giving a talk the other day and I mispronounced the word zeitgeist like a hundred, like many times I kept pronouncing it zitgeist. Um, and the audience was like laughing at me and I didn't realize why. But, but, you know, stories don't try and capture the zeitgeist of, of a, and, and I argue, I don't think you can. But I think, you know, so novels that claim to, I don't think actually do. 
in most cases. But stories, I think that voice, I just like that marginalized voice. If you remind me of another hazard of being a, such a, a bookworm as a kid is I knew so many words in print, but I didn't know how they were pronounced. So I would yeah. be saying something really like <laughs> there was some French completely wrong, you know. Sometimes <laughs> there was French in that dad, my father essay, but I didn't read it because yeah. I didn't want to get it. <laughs> well, you do. He, uh, the overcoat is covered in here. You write about that there. Um, tell us a little bit about just the writing, the discipline itself. I consider you to be. Prolific, fairly prolific. You got all these books out in you know not a particularly long period of time. What's your discipline? I mean, do you nail yourself to the floor at a desk so you spend so many hours, or how do you make yourself? I have I have no discipline. Yeah. Uh, so how do they come out if you have no discipline? I because I, I, well, I, I don't kind of pressure. I read. I I I, I read, and reading makes me inspired to write a little. Mm-hmm. But it's not the other way around. It's it always. And that's, I mean, I talk about this a lot, but reading sort of just, I like, I read and it kind of moves me or does something to me. And then I'm like, all right, I can write a few pages now. Um, some days I will just read, you know, and, and you know, and go from there. It's funny you should say that because I was looking at this little, at this uh, insert that came in the paper a while ago from Books, Inc., bookstores. Oh. And you start right off by saying, I often hear people say I should read more books. I really should read more books, as if books are medicine, as if books are exercise, as if they're a low-carb diet. <laughs> why <laughs> why is this? Why is reading books so equated with being good for you? And you go on to say, people think you read a lot of books or it's in one of these... If I if I read a lot of books, I'm going to be better. But then you say, well, it has nothing to do with being a good writer. It doesn't I help. Think that's true. And but I you get good ideas why, why from you, it, I guess. Do you, don't you often hear from people like, I should read more? They'll come in your house, they'll see your books, and be like, oh, I wish I, I wish I read. Like, what's stopping you? <laughs> a and B. Why? Why should maybe you should be a fundraiser for good causes? Like, why is reading always considered this thing that you should do? What do our teachers do to us that? Wrecked it. Makes like it a job. You know what I mean? I mean, reading, yeah. Yeah. Like, Jeez. what about, like, I don't know, not to be, you know, reading Stendhal, that is, I mean, which sounds all highbrow, but it's not. It's like the most lowbrow, like, just wonderful. And so why why does it always have to be that? I, I, I resp- yeah, that gets me going. But mm-hmm. anyway, so. <laughs> Sorry. Do you, so, and, and how much when you first get a draft out or when you're writing each day? I mean, do you do a lot of rewriting often? Yeah, I, I, I rewrite and re- that that's, I mean, if when I do work and I work in the morning, usually every morning in some capacity, um, but I creating is so hard for me that I rely on what I've already done to, to just get me moving. And so rewriting it's like it's almost like this crutch. If I and usually it makes stuff better, not in every case. Rewriting sometimes can wreck something, mm-hmm. and I've had that happen many times. But um, but it's just a way of sort of reengaging uh, with with the material, and so I often um, that's how I trick myself into working. Yeah, I don't know if if he was telling the truth or not, but Hemingway once said that when he was working, and these were on both stories and novels. That he would start, he wrote in the morning, he would start each morning by rereading everything he'd read up to then. So by the end, at a novel, he was rereading the novel every day. And so he had read it hundreds of times and rewrite, you know, changing it as he went along to the end to do one more page at the end. I don't believe a lot of things he says, but I believe believe that. Right. (laughs) He also said he stopped every day in mid-sentence so that he could get the momentum going. I I believe that one too. Yeah. He said he stopped at noon so he could start drinking. <laughs> right. So that was, you know. And that too. Yeah. <laughs> you believe that? Yeah. Right. 
So everything else was the next collection of stories was Last Car Over the Sagamore Bridge. Uh-huh. Right? You want to read one? From that? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Everybody doing okay? Uh, okay. Um, uh, I thought here I'd, I'd, I'd never done this before, read from so many things at once, so I, I, I hope it's okay. Uh, but I'll read um, a story called Dyke Bridge. Uh, anybody know what Dyke Bridge is famous for? Uh, you will in a moment. Yeah, see, I wasn't going to say <laughs> Dyke that. Dyke Bridge, uh, Chappaquiddick, Mass. I was another Massachusetts story. Um, uh, <laughs> we're going east again. Uh, so this is a, a pretty brief story, a four-page four story uh, called Dyke Bridge. And, you know, we were talking about, like, fact, and how to, I thought I'd read something that's sort of really based on a, a true incident and then, you know, kind of playing off it. So, Dyke Bridge, Chappaquiddick, Massachusetts, 1976. My brother and I are knee deep. My brother and I in the knee deep water, standing in the tidal current under Dyke Bridge. We are hunting whelks. Yes, is the water Mary Jo Kopechny drowned in. I know all about it. About Teddy drunk and how the story of what happened was less covered up than simply muddled. What was there to cover up? Her body was found in his car. My brother told me it. How Teddy was still mourning his brothers, both his brothers, and that he drank too much. Not that this excuses what happened, my brother says, but wouldn't you drink if somebody shot me in the head and then your other brother, if you had another brother? Wouldn't you drink a whole hell of a lot and probably crash a car? We're on vacation with our parents on Martha's Vineyard. We're from Illinois. It's classy, according to my parents, if you're from Illinois, to take a vacation on Martha's Vineyard. It's also what they call, it's also what they call Kennedy-esque. My parents are still married to each other, though my brother and I would prefer this not to be the case. We have ridden our bikes out to this bridge to see this very spot, to muck around in this famous water. Uh, my brother is wearing a t-shirt with the face of Senator Sam Irvin, the hero of Watergate, on it. That is absolutely true. He wore that Sam Irvin shirt his whole life. Um, I want to remember that we were alone there was only the two of us but somewhere in some stack of pictures in some cabinet in my father's house there are pictures of my brother and me standing under Dyke Bridge so it must be that at least one of our parents was with us and recorded it and since my mother rarely took pictures it had to have been my father but let's leave him out of this just my brother and me in the knee deep water and my brother telling me that Teddy was heading back to the island that night back from the even smaller island where there'd been a party, that he was driving a black Chevrolet because the Kennedys may be richer than God, but they are not ostentatious, and that Mary Jo Kopechny wasn't even very beautiful. She wasn't Teddy's wife either, he says, but that goes with this territory. What territory? The territory of being richer than God, my brother says. The landscape of sex and whisperings and innuendo. I would rather fish up a whelk than listen to any of this. A live whelk with a black body inside, a jelloish, squirmy thing that we will take back to our rented house and boil alive on the stove. Even so, I ask, how much not very beautiful was she? And my brother says, not particularly unbeautiful, just not that beautiful for a Kennedy. She wasn't Jackie, is what I'm trying to say. But anyway, nobody was Jackie. Even Jackie wasn't Jackie. (laughs) Anyway, Teddy may have even loved her, though he hardly knew her, especially after she asphyxiated. What do you mean? My brother stares at me for a while. He and I have the same eyes, which is sometimes very creepy. 
You don't know yourself coming and going, as my grandmother used to say. Then he squats in the water and takes a couple of handfuls of ocean and raises his hands as it flows through his fingers. Don't we sort of love what we kill, my brother says? What about the whelks? Our bikes are on the bridge, leaning against a broken piling. Dyke Bridge is a tiny, miniature bridge. It's not much bigger than the width of a Chevy and nearly the same length. Driving off it is the bathroom equivalent of falling out of the bathtub. I email my brother and ask him if he remembers all this. He's still very sensitive when it comes to the Kennedys. Like my mother, he remains a staunch believer in the notion that the New England wisdom embodied by the Kennedys and their aristocracy of sorrow will save this doomed country yet. My brother works in Washington. Why exaggerate, he writes. Why tell it worse? What happened isn't enough? Yes, it's a dinky bridge, but it's bigger than a bathtub. I remember. We were out there with Dad. He took pictures. He thought the whole thing was hilarious. He kept saying, be careful not to step on Mary Jo's face. And furthermore, my brother says, I should not, even over private electronic communication, remember, don't use my .gov address for things like this. Provide aid and succor. That's pronounced right to the haters who still love to dredge this story up out of the muck. Remember Chappaquiddick. Let the man rest in peace. And anyway, he says, why don't you just pick up the phone and call me? I write, email gives the illusion of dramatic distance. He replies, anyway, isn't anything drive offable if you put your mind to it? Or even when you don't, especially when you don't? He was tanked, what's the story? You're gonna pass judgment? Look at your own life. My brother's right. He's right. Even when he's not right, he's right. Look at my own life. And nothing he has ever told me have I forgotten. It's only that something happened there under that bridge where my brother and I once swam. As things do, as they always have, so many more things, strange things, impossible things than we can even begin to imagine. Dream it up, and you find it's already happened. One minute you're drunk and laughing, and your hand is on a bare summer thigh, and there's nothing but tonight ahead. And the next, the car is upside down, and water's flowing in through the cracks in the windows, and the car's like a big, fat, grounded fish. And there's this woman, what's her name again? Flailing her arms in the darkness of the water and trying to shout, but there's no sound coming out of her mouth, and you wonder for a moment if you do love her. Wait, what's your name again? I'm confused. This is all so much black confusion. Shouldn't I be swimmingly noble? Don't I know the cross chest carry? Aren't I a Kennedy? Aren't I the brother of the hero of PT-109? Isn't now the time? No, now is not the time. Now is the time to save yourself. It doesn't matter who you are, Senator. Save yourself and then run. My brother once said, though he does not remember, don't we sort of love what we kill? This I've learned on my own. Sometimes you have to save yourself and then run like hell. There'll always be time for nobility, honor, sorrow, remorse, yes, yes, maybe even love in the morning. The shadow of that little bridge over our heads, us in the dark water, my brother and me, the gummy sand, July 1976. So. <laughs> Thanks. Another cheerful uh, yeah. story. <laughs> I do, there might be a cheerful story somewhere in there. I don't so know there. where. Anyway. <laughs> This, I mean, just reminded me of, of that, and this isn't related to a question, but in one of the essays here, you're writing about Czechoslovakia. You spent time there, yeah. you know, how they 
the various people were trying to figure out how to lead the country out of this, you know, war and so forth. And one fellow who was just haunting used bookstores and, you know, ended up becoming a leader there. But you said, this is the man who will lead the revolution. Why not? I'll take my presidents as I take my fictional heroes, flawed or not at all. Those who believe they've cornered the market on wisdom are the ones to steer clear of in literature, politics, life. Give me the confused, the mistake-ridden, the still trying to figure it all out. Um, That's about Václav Havel. Yeah, Havel. Who was a very flawed president. No question about it. He was the worst president there was a playwright. But, you know, I'd rather have him. You know, and I think when he died, I, I was responding the night that he died. I reread a play of his called Largo Desolato, which is about a, a philosopher who can't decide if he wants to get arrested or not. Because resting would make him a hero, but then he'd have to go to jail. Um, so, anyway. So you are a professor, as you say, teaching at San Francisco State, even the chair now. Now, so one of the debates has always been in fiction: is can you really teach it or not? Um, so, how does that go for you? Are you teaching like a graduate class? I teach a graduate MFA program. Yeah. 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 No, the answer is no. I think. <laughs> do you think? What do you think? I agree. <laughs> Well, you know, you can't I mean, there's craft you can learn, you know, and there, you know, there are tips. But yeah. like you're saying about it, it has to come out of your own life experience and your struggle with getting that onto the page in some way. Yeah. Right? Totally. So what do you tell them? You got to sit there for an hour or two with these <laughs> students. <laughs> Three hours, actually. Three hours. Three hours, seven hours. No, you said, uh, here's, here's, here's a clue of how hard it is. This is in the new book. Teaching a seminar a few years ago, I remember saying, it is critical to always ask yourself why you are telling your story. What a line of bullshit. <laughs> I used to say that. I used to say, a story needs to have a certain need. Otherwise, if it's not needing to tell it, you know what, I mean, what kind of... And I believed it. I truly would say this with great uh, authority. Um, uh, but... It did make sense to me. It does, but in, you know, what about a story you don't need to tell but comes out anyway? You know what I mean? I mean, like, and it's a better one than the one that, I, you know, I just, it, it strikes me as being, yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, I still sort of think about it. A story usually has to be, you know, has to come out of you. But I also feel like any sort of pithy line like that sometimes can, you know, can just be unhelpful if you sort of think about it a little bit more. But you know, I, what I found with teaching is, is what I love about it, and I, I do love it, um, is exposing students to, to reading and to, to kind of, you know, I did a class um, last year where we read uh, Don Quixote, um, which I'd never read, which is a nice thing about teaching. You can force yourself to, you know, read something. Um, and by the last class, I won't ruin the ending, but, you know, he does, there is a final, final demise of the great, of the great man, not the second great, not the real great man. Sancho lives on, um, but people were weeping in my class, and and it wasn't because we've been like focusing on like like how to write, but I think that the fact that Don Quixote became so real to to these otherwise cynical grad students, I think probably down the line will make them better writers. I'm sure, um, but better readers certainly. And so that's what I think I try and impart. But when I teach like a workshop, quote workshop class, I'm always uncomfortable because I think people want more than I can, than I can provide. Right. Um, and also it's your own personal aesthetic. I like things tight. I like them, you know, and, and, and I'll have great writers who write, you know, wonderfully long pieces. And maybe I'm not the right 
person. So it's an imperfect thing. But what's nice about teaching is you're in a community of people who care, and that is invaluable. And I, you know, people like as a cottage industry of trashing on MFA programs and graduate programs and whatever. And, you know, I think that's a lot of nonsense. It's, you know, these are, I mean, I've, everyone in my program has a day job. This is not like of some kind of rarefied uh, bullshit. So I find that the attacks on MFA program are almost as, as facile as the people who go in them thinking that they're, you know, going to be an answer. Mm-hmm. And it forces people, it, it forces a discipline on you because you have to write for the Class. Yeah, yeah, sure. Deadline. That's, never that's never hurts. probably the best, you know. Never hurts. That's why, you know, so many good journalists who are writers, you know, because right. they, they know, they know you got to get the piece in the paper. Yeah. So. so you've traveled a fair amount, and some of that's for teaching and some for writing. There's mm-hmm. great passages in Europe, around Europe, Albania of all places, <laughs> Haiti, um, and Africa. There's a couple of great line, sections in here of him taking off for some place, and then as soon as he's there, he's somewhere and saying, you know, why did I come here? What the hell am I doing here? You know, trying to figure it out, right? But, um, and you're going back. You went to, of all places, Namibia and Albania. I mean, when I was traveling around the world a lot, this was, you know, decades ago, you couldn't get into Albania. You know, there was a famous Saturday Night Live or something like that where they they were talking to the so-called ambassador who was hiding and said, you know, well, we answer. He wouldn't answer any questions. He goes, well, what are women like in Albania? He goes, there are no women in Albania. <laughs> you know, it was just a, so. How do you, so? There's a little more open now. I don't know. You know. And why were you there? My Albanian trip was a disaster. As I, yeah. As I, I ended up. I had a, you know, it's embarrassing, but I, I was in Albania. There have these things, and one day maybe I'll write about it. But I, they have the, uh, what's his name? Uh, the great Albanian dictator, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chesky's, I think, Romania. It was Romania. The other guy. Albania, the guy was, they were so nuts that even the Soviets thought, you know, yeah, yeah. That, they were, <laughs> that these guys, like, totally, you know, kind of like. There are no dictators in Albania. Yeah, but, but he uh, had built these tiny bunkers all over the country. There's these little bunkers, and and they're these little, you can look at them online, they're these amazing, like, and they're, I don't know what, who was going to invade them, but somebody was. Maybe they were worried about the Soviets. That was probably the only obvious choice, but they were going to be invaded by everybody. And they had, it was a bunker mentality, and they created all, so I wanted to go look at these little structures. It also has very nice beaches, by the way. Um, Albania's on the rise. Albania. Toronto was a very nice city. It was, it was, very, it was like almost too pleasant. Uh, and I ended up reading a John Cheever story, which is, and I make fun of myself, why would I go to Albania and read about wasps in Connecticut? But I, that's, what I, that's what I did. So... That's the Albania story. I was really just there for a few days. Well, <laughs> it was a bomb. Well, and what I remember too about traveling by yourself to a lot of these exotic places, you you zeroed in on in that same passage. In fact, and you you were talking, you know, wandering around, and still, I'll always have loneliness. My only calling, <laughs> right? Something that you know, to various degrees, we all carry with us at different times, and that's probably and that's. One of the stereotypes or truths about writing, too, is a solitary pursuit. You have to isolate yourself to do it, right, you know, in some ways. Yeah. Um, you know, which comes first? Does it make you more lonely or is it just inevitable that being a somewhat solitary person, even with the family and so forth, um, that this is what you're required to be, prolific and just, so forth? I have a, a, I have a six-week-old baby now. Yeah. I just had a little baby and so I'm huh? so unlonely, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I crave it. I, I mean, I think I'm not alone. I, I know that you 
people, I mean, I love that feeling. And I think reading in particular, you know, gives me that sense of isolation. You know, you have all these voices, you have voices in your head and maybe voices on the page you're reading, but it, you, know, you can't really read with, I mean, I like reading and I like reading in public, I like reading at home when people are bustling around me, but I find I crave that it provides some kind of barrier that does make me feel, you know, by myself. And so um, I think that's what I'm constantly after. I and mean, that's sort of what the book was like, you know, you know, kind of about was about this idea of, you know, what it means I mean, to be alone. And I was trying to figure out why I craved it so much. Mm-hmm. But there's a Kafka would write in his diary, you would say, he really wanted to be alone, but then he was always at parties and always at Cafe Louvre in Prague, like yucking it up with his friends. And he writes about this diary, this tension between wanting to be with people, wanting to be alone. It's just, it's constant in all of his um, nonfiction work. And I, I responded to that because I feel like, I feel like I can relate to that. I really want to be alone. And yet the minute I'm alone, I'm rushing to people, you know, so. Restless. Yeah. 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 Um, so Namibia, you've been before and you're going back. Yeah, I'm going back. Uh, just next month. Yeah. And yeah. what are you, you're on a Fulbright, right? Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. And, Thanks. And what are you going to be doing? What's the... Well, I, in the early 90s, I, um, Namibia is uh, uh, next to South Africa. And it was um, fascinating. In the early 90s, uh, they became independent. Uh, it, was a, it was an apartheid satellite country. But when Mandela was released and the Cold War ended... Um, Namibia became independent before, while South Africa was still apartheid. And so I was just fascinated with, it was the time of the 80s and the divestment movement on campuses. So I was interested in South Africa. So I ended up in this place in Namibia, which is enormous country with two deserts, the Kalahari and the Namib. It's the size of like two Texases. I mean, it's an enormous place and it has very few people in it. And I fell in love with this place and ended up, my first novel was set there. Um, which took me 10 years to write. And so, um, yeah, I think I brought it. Uh, oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Uh, that was, that almost killed me. Um, and so I'm going back for more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And to do a nonfiction book there, hopefully. It's the idea, but it may fall apart like Albania did. Uh-huh. So I'm going to be there a little longer. But, uh-huh. So, You want to read another section? Sure, yeah. Is everybody okay? I'll, I'll read one last section. Um, uh I should say on each of these two. So your brother in, in each chapter starts with a, a drawing by his brother Eric. Most of them are the covers of books that, yeah. that key off the chapter. Um, very cool. Yeah, my I, I, my brother and I were talking about just just like the artists, you know, like that's the Cheever book. You know, it's the, called the World of Apples. But these wonderful um, artists who, you know, we kind of are forgotten, you know. Um, and so my brother. Did these uh, Wright Morris, great, great Nebraska writer who lived in Mill Valley for many years? Wright Morris collected stories. We could talk a lot about Wright Morris, but I will. Uh, I'll read one last piece. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Steve Heilig and Peter Orner. With your indulgence, um, and this is about Moby Dick, and it's set here in Bolinas. Um, okay, all right. Uh, early morning thoughts on Ahab. Um, uh, okay. Last night, deep into Moby Dick on page 667, 
I was surprised when Ishmael announces out of nowhere that not very long before the Pequod set sail, Ahab was found writhing in pain on a cobblestone street in Nantucket. His ivory leg had buckled and stabbed him in the groin. This incident is the single glimpse in the entire novel of Ahab on land. Where was he coming from? Was he on his way home? Ishmael doesn't seem to know. He doesn't even tell us how he knows this story or from whom he heard it. But he does say, curiously, that Ahab was found and assisted by, quote, someone unknown. Imagine it. Ahab, sprawled in the road, and a stranger comes up to him, hoists him, touches him. This strikes me that this someone help, this someone unknown would have had to touch Ahab's body in order to help him. And Ishmael claims that this incident so scarred Ahab that it explains why he remained locked in his cabin, seen by nobody during the first few days of the voyage. At that time, and this is hundreds of pages earlier in the book, and you don't need any Moby Dick experience, you know, just... This is just what I do. I think about what happens on page 667 of a book, but no information needed. Uh, Ishmael had remarked that he was nervous about Ahab being absent from the deck. A sailor likes to have an opportunity to size up his captain before entrusting the man with his life for three years. But by that time, the Pequod was already underway, so what choice? When he does glimpse Ahab for the first time, Ishmael reports that the man looks as if he's just been cut away from a burning stake. And now, here comes Ishmael's assertion, again, seriously late in the book, if you ask me, that Ahab's demented state of mind stems as much from this falling in the street as from the white whales munching his leg off in the first place. This all got me thinking this morning. I was standing by the edge of the cliff at the end of Poplar Road in Bolinas. Below my feet, Ahab's last ocean. On the shoreline, the waves played with some logs as if they were chopsticks. Ahoy there! This is the Pequod, bound round the world. Tell them to address all future letters to the Pacific, Pacific Ocean, and this time three years, if I'm not at home, tell them to... Tell them to what? Ahab never finishes this line, shouted to the ghost ship. Goni, bound for home. I find that lately I do more reading than writing and more thinking by far than either. I read at night until I fall asleep with the light on, a book tented over my nose, and in the morning I wander around the edge of this cliff thinking about what I read the night before. But isn't thinking a form of writing without the pressure of needing to communicate with anybody? I'm testing out the possibility of writing a book in my head without pen, paper, or computer. The Israeli novelist Yoel Hoffman once wrote, it did occur to this author once that he could write a book that is all blank pages. It's July 2015. A terrible month in America is over. In Charleston, just a few weeks ago, less than a mile away from where my daughter's grandmother lives, a boy with a similar bowl haircut to the one I had as a kid spent an hour listening to a group of people talk about the Bible. That night, the group was studying the Gospel of St. Mark. Jesus delivers a sermon from out on a boat to accommodate the huge crowd that has gathered on the shore to hear him. He tells the parable of the sower and compares the likelihood of seed thriving in different places to degrees of receptivity among the faithful to the message of the Gospel. It all depends on how people listen. And these are the words which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. I ask this rhetorically, 
sorry, I ask this honestly, <laughs> but maybe I am asking rhetorically. <laughs> Did that kid, Dylan Roof, hear a word of any of it? This single solitary word penetrate. If you're not home in three years, tell them to what, Ahab? What? Did you know even then that you never come home again? Maybe he was just afraid, like so many people are afraid. Maybe this is all it ever amounted to, ordinary fear. Ahab was afraid to stay home, afraid to walk his own streets, afraid for some reason to go home to his family, to his own wife and young son, afraid so he had no choice but to sail on. But there's a moment just before all hell breaks loose when Starbuck tries to convince Ahab to believe in something beyond himself. And he implores Ahab to turn the boat eastward. He says it's not too late to change direction and call this voyage quits. The two of them could still live to see their wives and children again. And this is famous speech. Oh, my captain, my captain, noble soul, grand old heart. After all, why should anyone give chase to that hated fish? Away with me. Let us fly these deadly waters. Let us home. Wife and child, too, are Starbucks. Wife and child of his brotherly, sisterly, playfellow youth. Even as thine, sir, are the wife and child of thy loving, paternal old age. Away. Let us away. This instant, let me alter the course. How cheerily, how hilariously, oh, my captain, would we bowl on our way to see old Nantucket again? I think, sir. They have such mild blue days, even as this in Nantucket. Let us home. I don't think there's a sadder sentence in Moby Dick. And by God, it nearly works. Ahab responds, they have, they have. I've seen them. Some summer days in the morning, about this time, yes, it is his new nap now. The boy vivaciously wakes sits up in bed, and his mother tells him of me, of cannibal old me, how I am abroad upon the deep, but will yet come back to dance him again. Of course, if they'd given up the hunt, we wouldn't have had a tragedy. Without a tragedy, we wouldn't have the book. Plot's got to do what plot's got to do. But maybe this is why I've always been so wary of it. It forces characters to do something, anything, when all they should be doing is heading home. But did you notice something? Ahab, of all people on earth, knows the exact time of day his kid wakes up from his nap. Daddy Ahab. Ahab will never get back to dance that boy again, and he knows it. Maybe Ahab concocted the whole murderous, insane ordeal to simply avoid going home. Because there, and only there, existed a nameless terror. He could not sail onward into the deep and pretend to hunt. Home, let us home, let us home. So, thank you. Uh, the, the new book has so much in it that is that I, I would consider very personal, autobiographical, sure. yeah. um, and often very painful. So for a private person, a loner, to have this come out with all this, I mean, do you cringe at all? Do you fear that it's going to be published 
You know, I mean, some of the, it's 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 amazing. Some of the stuff in here is very moving. Thank you. And and the way you wrote it, but also brave to write it. I think some of it. So, I mean, you know, I I always think like, you know, because I'm because I'm a fiction writer, even when I'm writing nonfiction, and the diff- the difference I think in this book was that I was truly trying to tell it like I understood it, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, so the kind of the two kind of concurrent stories are my father's demise and, and, and you know, the book kind of charts his, his death and then my own um, pretty painful um, first marriage, uh, which I rarely talk about. <laughs> and a lot of people who know me don't know much about it. Um, but my uh, wife, um, uh, my ex-wife uh, was pretty, pretty ill, mentally ill. And so I never wanted to talk about that. And yet if I was going to talk, about what reading meant to me, um, I couldn't not, you know. And uh, both of those people, they were very good readers, and my father was, and 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 uh, uh, my uh, ex-wife was very supportive of what I was saying. And so that part I made sure of. But you know, I I thought if I was going to talk about this, I couldn't I couldn't not include that. But it is uncomfortable but you know i mean it's my business <laughs> you know what i mean so well, it's, uh, you know it's I, art too it's yeah business. It's true and business of the art of okay. it you know and so you know it wasn't i just felt like i i i was trying to write a book about what reading meant to me but i had to include how it informed personal things mm-hmm. i'm not talking about catharsis you know um i don't know but it's just something that allowed me to move through things um, and maybe understand things in a different way, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's, it's uh, been a little strange to have people say, wow, I had no idea. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I mean, not, you know, we don't know about most of our things. Right. And, you know, so, but I thought it wouldn't be honest if I didn't sort of try and uh, tackle these two things that were weighing on me um, in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, would you do one? I, this is very short, but somebody. I don't want to torture. This no, this is very short. But Vic, Mar- Vic Martinez, somebody that I, oh, sure, I knew yeah. as well. So yeah, this, this is, is only a page. Brief. This is very it's only brief. a page. My friend Victor. And, and he wrote sure, a book called yeah. Parrot in the Oven, which was uh, quite renowned in its way, National Book Award winner. Yes, right? yeah. So and, Victor, uh, the, the section three, unfortunately, is all the people I've lost. Uh, and Victor being one of them, he was a very, very close friend of mine. And Victor um, Martinez, I, he lived in, uh, on Cap Street in San Francisco. And he and I used to go to the MoMA all the time. And he would uh, scoff at the paint. You know, he would just be like, that one sucks. That one's good. That, and, he'd, and then he would stand at the good one for like a long time. He was, anyway, he, he wrote a book called Paired in the Oven, which was um, marketed as a young adult. Um, but it's a beautiful novel about growing up in Fresno and, um, and uh, uh, he worked in the tomato fields and just an incredible um, person. Anyway, it's called, he, he never wanted to be considered, you know, Mexican-American writer or Hispanic writer. He said, you know, I'm an American writer. I'm from Fresno, you know, but he was celebrated when he won the National Book Award in sort of a way that, you know, I think he was certainly happy he won that award, but it was problematic to him the way he's always been characterized. So, so I, the title is An American Writer. Uh, Victor Martinez, 1954, 2011. 
And when you fell down in the parking lot in front of the acupuncture clinic on Mariposa Street, you didn't have the strength to be embarrassed. The acupuncture was the only thing that eased the pain a little. But you didn't get embarrassed. If it had been me who'd fallen, if it had been me who'd been too weak to take a single step further, if it had been me who collapsed on the sidewalk on a bright, ordinary October day, you wouldn't have blinked. You just shrugged off my apologies, my shame at being such an inconvenience, and pulled me right back up. When you fell, I hesitated. I looked at you on the ground as if you lying there was something I needed to remember, as if you were already gone. And when I was finally able to muster the strength to yank you up by the armpits, you didn't mention it. You asked how far the car was. You said, how about a hot dog, the little stand on DeHaro and 16th? It's a lie when I say I wish it had been me on the pavement, the sort of easy lie you detested. I wish it was me on the pavement because you were heavy, because I was scared, because I didn't want you to die on my watch, because I didn't want to be the one to have to call Tina. This isn't much, but at least know that I'm thinking of you now, today, on another October morning, and you're still not here. We lionize our dead. Vic, I understand this. It makes us stupid. But at least allow me this. I wish the car had been further and that you and I were still walking towards it. And then it ends with a quote from, he was a great poet. And uh, this is the end of a, a poem called Don't Forget. Um, when I see my aunt's old dress in the closet where the soft tissues of her leaving even now drift in the vacant air, and when I remember how my grandmother's back would not let the coffin lid close, the sutures of my heart unpluck, and their lives spill warm as urine through my arteries. Victor, Victor Martinez. Right. So, yeah. So my last question, and then sure. we'll see if maybe there's a couple sure. on here too, is when I ask everybody, how did you find Bolinas? How did I find Bolinas? Uh, I, <laughs> I, my partner, Katie, a lot of you know, Katie Kraut, is not here tonight because she's with the kids. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying kids, plural. Kids. Yeah. My mother calls and says, how are the children? I'm like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so it was Katie who found Bolinas. We were in the city and we were just feeling suffocating. And Katie, and we would come out on the weekends. And one day she just said, let's just move there. And this was about five years ago. And uh, we... Uh, I hesitated because I thought I just, but then I, I was the one that had to be, you know, I, I only want to be here. I don't want to leave. I never want to go over the mountain as, as a lot of you know. So, um, you know, I, I found a place that I really, um, as, as I, you all know this story, you know, I'm just another one. I'm just another one. So, but it's meant a great deal to me as have you, all of you. So. Sitting in what you've called your favorite library in the world. Yes. Right. This is the best life. It's all lit up at night, like a Christmas tree tonight. It's really nice. You know? And we hear, I mean, this is sort of an intervention, like a support group, too, that you yeah. have some outstanding library fees. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't have to go to Africa sometimes, to avoid this. Van, you know, like, falls over when she looks at the... But uh, I can't go to any other library. I can't go to Fairfax. Yeah. It's rough. Yeah. Stinson's the other... Great, great, <laughs> great library. Forgiving. Yes, extremely, right. extraordinarily forgiving. Uh, without Jane and Carrie, I'm not sure how this, this whole community would function, for real. And you all know that, too. So, yeah. But. Well, thanks. Does anybody here want to ask or make a comment with Peter? Um, what did you say your grandfather's name was? 
uh, my grandfather's name in, it was Fred in real life. Yeah, uh, Kaplan, Fred Kaplan. Yeah. Not you too. Are you? <laughs> What's that? Didn't you say Dwaskin? Uh, I, I had a friend in high school named Paul Dwaskin, so I was oh, using that last name. Oh, okay. Dwaskins are, <laughs> I know a lot of Dwaskins. There's a lot of Dwaskins in Chicago. Yeah, I'm so. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this, those, I love those just names I kind of carry around. But Paul DeWaskins, obviously, he's like, why do you keep putting my name in your books? Um, I just, because I like, because it's a great name. DeWaskin, it's nice. It must mean something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very sophisticated sounding. But, that's right. But I love names. You know, when I heard that, when you said that your grandmother didn't mention it for 20 years, it could be either. I mean, on the one hand, I've heard of that happening when somebody was so traumatized by the loss that they couldn't mention it too so that yeah yeah for sure yeah yeah i think i think it's like a story that just it's always in the background but i mean i mean i kind of i mean that in that character and you know her almost leaving him behind when he's dead it's sort of what maybe what i was thinking but i have thought about that for a long time she loved to gamble she'd just go and she'd take the bus to the to the you know to the to the casino that's what she talked about it was so weird, you know, and I, I'm, to this day, I, I asked her all the time. And, and she would answer, you know, she would answer. And she was surrounded by his things, you know. Um, my grandfather did a weird thing. He, I'm sure other men of his generation did this, but he literally kept track of every single cent he spent in a spending diary, including like tips. And, and as, the, as towards the end of his life, the spending diary becomes like a store, like it becomes the store, you know, he talks about a little bit more about what happened at the lunch with Uncle Dave and, you know, Uncle Meyer and, you know, uh, you know, Uncle Meyer's bankruptcy hearing was at this time, like all of the stories start to creep in. It's remarkable. So, but I think they were not a, a, a people, you know, maybe it's generational, but they weren't some people who talked a lot about this, but it was there. It was there. So I appreciate the, you know, something I think about a lot. So this isn't a question. This is a, a statement, a, a love letter, as it. I when I read this book, I just it doesn't happen very often, but I quivered through it because I, you know, it was like putting on the coat that fit. So I have a radio program at KWMR, alternate Tuesday mornings, reading to John, and I said, "Can I? Can I?" And he said, "Yes." yes. So I'm going to read probably the whole. You know, and so if you want it in the ear. Don't tell Lyons. Tell, tell Lyons that my publisher said it was okay. No, I do. I do. Let me tell She'll you. She'll get after you. <laughs> she is. No, 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 no. So, <laughs> totally um, okay. Yeah, I'll be starting in a year and then I'll be gone in March. But in any case, to, if you can get it in Bolivis, it's kind of problematic these days. But you can get it on your computer. So, real time. So, in any Thank case, um, just I just love the book and I'll, I'll share it with you in my voice with Peter, right, breathing, <laughs> the ocean breathing him, and Peter breathing into us with a lot of books. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I, I heard the wanting to write without, without paper, without pen, on KWMR, and oh. I just finished reading the Daddy Bell and the Butterfly. Ah, beautiful book, actually. Yeah. Beautiful book, yeah. and yeah. of course. Okay. Right, right. It's just as uh, 
eyelid. His eyelid. It's yeah. remarkable. Yeah. yeah. And so I was so struck by that. And then, yeah. and then just now, a book of like pages and um, a book or so ago, the Stinson Library book who read Terry Tempest Williams' Women Words. Oh, great. Yeah. Where her mother leaves there her journals and they're all that that the Israeli writer that I refer to is a guy named Yoel Hoffman who um, really interested me because his in addition to being a really wonderful fiction writer who's sort of considered a kind of somewhat annoyingly I think like Israel's greatest experimental novelist he's just a great novelist that you know but one of his his other expertise is the um, haiku like as a, as a scholar and so you can tell in his fiction that he's just he's trying to get that kind of intensity within um, a short section of his prose. And it's, yeah, so he, I stole that, you know, I quoted him, but Joel Hoffman, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Do you write poetry? No, I, I never, I never, uh, I never have. Yeah, I write sometimes very short prose sections that maybe arguably, but to me they aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I was <clears throat> so curious for you to finish your sentence. You love me hanging about what New Yorker stories are like. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, it's a cheap shot, I think, but um, because, you know, it's not always true. I mean, William Trevor just died, and, you know, um, you know. Yeah, just a, a kind of preoccupation with, um, you know, yeah, I, I get, I'm in trouble now because I don't have a good answer. Yeah, it's just like I'll I'll get a sense of it's sort of self more self-referential for the readership rather than taking me away from a certain and again it's this is totally generalizing which is why I feel uncomfortable about it um, but I do find that sometimes I, I I will start to read it and it just won't engage me because I don't feel like I'm going somewhere else you know but again I I feel you know. There's obviously many great exceptions to this. And William Trevor, who's in this book, who I revere almost above any short story writer, you know, um, and I think he has posthumous books coming and I can't wait. But, you know, his, if there was a story in New York of his, you know, but, you know, I, th I think sometimes it's a little self-referential the way New York can be, as you all know, right? I mean, obsessed with itself sometimes. And, you know, I find that that cliche sometimes bears out, but again, there's exceptions. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you have another book coming out just about now or something? It was delayed a little, but I've got a book coming out in April about, about Port-au-Prince. Um, Haiti. Other, yeah. Haiti, yes. Yeah. So it's an oral history of, of Port-au-Prince, which I could talk at length about. But um, Well, I'm but, curious, yeah. how, how did you get involved in that, in, in Haiti? Um, uh, or interested in You know, you asked about law stuff. I, yeah. I um, Because I was such an ineffectual lawyer and the world is grateful, I think, that I wasn't, I wasn't going to be a criminal lawyer. Can you imagine? I mean, it just it would have been a, my clients would have been, you know, there was this thing in law called ineffectual assistance of counsel. I would have been like the, in the, you know, I would have been the poster child of ineffectual Case assistance. Study. But I, I, a few years ago, I, I had this law degree and I got asked to, to do a, um, there's not enough people doing uh, immigration asylum cases. I mean, and literally you don't even have to be a lawyer to do them. Um, but because of, I had some legal training, I got involved and I, I tried a case in front of federal immigration court in San Francisco. This was about 2007. And um, a case of, a, of this Guatemalan kid who had 
come over after being, you know, horrible things happening to him with paramilitaries and all these things. Anyway, I lost the case. And uh, I was so devastated that I, that, I, that I thought, what can I do in what I do to sort of do something? And so I did this oral history of immigration of undocumented people in the States that came out in 2008. And ever since then, I've been involved in oral history, which is a somewhat, um, now it's become kind of like academic, but you know, I like Studs Terkel who went and just listened to people. And so I kind of come out of that style. And so I did another one because uh, of my interest in Africa. I did another one in Zimbabwe. And then I totally got talked into Haiti, which I had no experience and, and no you know, knowledge of. And, but I've spent the last three years working on that. And it's been a very eye-opening. And I have great people working with me that speak Creole, speak French. And um, that book's coming in April. So... Yeah. So you have something about people from Central America in one of those books that are undocumented that yeah, you Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I read part of that book. And I, it was so moving. Thank you. I wanted everybody I knew to read that. Remember that in 2008, it's called Underground America, Narratives of Undocumented Lives. And the thing about it was, it was 2008. I didn't ever imagine you know, I thought when the book, you know, it was a really bad, like Lou Dobbs would be on CNN and he'd be ranting about him. He's back. I can't believe this guy's back. Can you believe he's back on TV? But um, uh, I never thought it could get, you know, and now, I mean, they're going to, you know, they could take away this deferred action for the, the kids. It's just, a, so yeah, I thought that book was like a history. <laughs> it's not. No. It's not yeah. yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. Were you teaching English in Namibia, like the protagonist in The Return of... Yeah, I was. Yeah, ineffectually. Yeah, I was teaching. A, I was teaching seventh grade English. Yeah, right after independence, they hadn't written the history books yet. So it was sort of a fascinating time to be there. But they, it was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, I'm gonna be uh, doing a new book, uh, a nonfiction book um, about uh, about earlier early colonial re- rebels uh, who fought the Germans. German, Germans colonized Namibia. They didn't have many colonies in Africa, but they did have Namibia. And then the British colonized it, and then the South Africans had it as a satellite. So it was like thrice colonized country. Um, but, and I'll be teaching at the university too. So teaching um, uh, African literature and writing. Did it take the kid? The Taking both kids, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, you have a father in both the chat with it. Story sure. And the glove story. Yeah. Is the same guy? Uh, relatively. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> relatively. I mean, the fictional father is over the top. But then I realized when I was writing about him, he truly was over the, the real guy was over the top too. So, you know, my dad was a really good sport. I'm lucky in that sense. He was a very good reader. I mean, he had a lot of issues, but he was not a, you know, he was a good reader. So he was an appreciative reader. So when I skewered him, he would be appreciative of the prose, even though he didn't. He said, will you please stop? Will you please stop doing this? Would you have published the glow story while he was still alive? You know, I did publish it while he was alive. Did he read it? He did read it. Yeah. And he, uh, he, uh, he, uh, it was in the New York Times and he, he called me and he said, it's a great piece. And, uh, and I said, well, are you upset about the gloves? He, he, he sort of, um, you know, he was very generous like that. He was also sort of falling into dementia at that point too, which was sort of helpful. He, 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 there was a disconnect there. So. He didn't actually address the issue. 
Um, but maybe that was just because he's being nice. Yeah, so. yeah he, he appears in the book a fair amount. I mean, at one point you're having a teleconversation. He says, Eric. And he said, no, this is Peter. And he goes, well, whichever. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people, I mean, yeah, that, and that's the other reminder that, you know, I started with being reminded of Joanne in the writing. But the other one, we did a conversation last year with Peter Coyote, who's oh, yeah. an old friend, too. And he, he reminded me and my father as well, these very powerful and also unpredictable people. And he referred to his dad as coming home, just as you did as somebody rolling a hand grenade into the living room and you didn't, you didn't know if the pin had been pulled or not. So you just, you know, you live in that kind of fear and how that lives with you your whole life in yeah. a sense. But and you maybe ex- they don't even know they're doing that. Maybe they just think they're coming home from work. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah, that's what I got. Was yeah. It, yeah. And, you know, but you, you do in the book, you go through and, you know, not to get too analytical about or something but there's a lot of expression of remorse and even guilt about him you know sure, yeah. but even with somebody you know it's almost universal you know when after somebody dies there's the what if what i should have said or done or anything like that and you did your best you know so and it comes through you know and so that's a great story at the end there where he actually liked the gloves and didn't demand that you fedex them back to him or something right, like that. <laughs> exactly, right. he had lots of gloves yeah which is i then now i have a stack of them it's kind of sad yeah you know, my uh, his wife had a, like a this horrible yard sale after he died, and all the stuff was on the lawn, and including these stacks of these fancy gloves. I mean, he had lots of pairs. I kind of anyway, but um, so you buy them? Yeah, <laughs> I, I took them as my as my inheritance because there wasn't much else yeah, right. that I got. Believe me. So so yeah. So we actually have, courtesy of Point Ray's books, a bunch of these here for purchase and signing and what the New York Times called it. I thought it was a great line that I think you pulled out as well. Um, too irresponsible to be literary criticism and too irregular to be autobiography. <laughs> take it. I'll take so. It. <laughs> and then it does get a little nicer after that. But Oh, no. But I sort of appreciated that, you know, who wants to read responsible Literary criticism. Can you imagine? What, what, is, what is that? And I think this guy was sort of considering that he writes responsible criticism. <laughs> and he calls it entrancing, which yeah. is true. <laughs> so there you go. So thank you very much for coming here. And thank, thank you, Steve. Well. Thank you. Thank you. It's great. It was, it was such a great organizer. I mean, I was, you know, I just did what you said. Thank you all for here. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Steve Heilig and Peter Orner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook 